Hello and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. We're here to talk about angels and demons, ghosts, the pagan gods, and the weird corners of the Bible. We're talking about the beliefs of the ancient world, the way that they talked about the supernatural world, all to help you understand the people of the Bible and to be able to engage on a deeper level with the text of Scripture. Most important of all, we're here to show you Jesus as Deuteronomy 10.17 describes him. The Lord your God is the God of gods, Lord of lords, mighty and awesome. My name is Martin Listener. As always, I am the unofficial host of the Two Trees Podcast, and I'm here with Rose Moeller. She's going to tell you all about our online presence and where you can find us. Well, actually, I was going to congratulate you on such an awesome opening because I got to do it last week, and frankly, you do it better, Martin. So well, well thank you. done. Yeah. But if you want to I'm good leave at us- reading scripts. Yeah. Well, better than I am, apparently. <laughs> so if you want to leave us a review on wherever you listen to podcasts, please do that. And if that's not your thing, just share an episode with a friend. Just yeah, that's get the really word out there. the best way for our podcast to grow. We, we won't grow unless you guys decide we do. Uh, share it with a friend. Talk to somebody. Say, hey, I was listening to this, or I've got some questions. Check this out. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can use the algorithm all you like, but uh, ultimately it comes down to people. So we'd like to thank everybody who's bothered to listen to our podcast in the past and just say thanks. You know, this has been a lot of fun for us. We're approaching the end of our first season here. I think we have two more episodes that we're going to do before we take a break for the holidays. And uh, this has been fun. We've uh, we've covered a lot of randomness, and I look forward to covering a lot more. And doing all these podcasts here is a lot of fun, but... Uh, you know what I also really enjoy is getting on the Facebook page and, and just watching everybody interact with each other because we have some very, very intelligent people that listen to this podcast. And, and just I'm, I'm just humbled when you guys listen to me talk because I'm sure you know way more about this stuff than I do. So I, I really appreciate that. But I love getting on the Facebook page and just seeing everybody interact with each other and go about it and seeing some of the nice comments that we get even on uh, like the iTunes platform and everything. So we love interacting with everybody. We love your guys' feedback. Um, and that's what's really been a huge blessing to me. It's it's nice when people listen to you, but to get them talking amongst each other and with us, and John does a good job of being on the Facebook page as well with a presence. So I just want to say thank you to everybody that uh, interacts in that way. It's true. Well, right now we are continuing our discussion about the prophet Balaam. And uh, and he's he's kind of a, a second-class story, I think, to most people. We We kind of have relegated Balaam to, uh, you know, a children's story. It's got a talking animal. Uh, it's got Balaam, and we have done a really wonderful job of turning something that is supposed to be frightening and wonderfully scary into something very fluffy. And uh, and really, our our hope here is to to kind of talk about the actual Balaam story. What what did this mean to its original audience? What kind of imagery should we be picking up on? And uh, the very first thing I think we we ought to recognize is that Balaam is not a prophet of the Lord, although he does at this one point share something that the Lord has shared with him. But rather, Balaam is more like a a necromancer, a a sorcerer, a wizard. He's He's a pagan priest is what he is. And he's someone who's become famous by cursing people. And he's not from the local area where the, uh, the Israelites are at. He doesn't seem to live down in Moab, but he's someone from the Ammonite home country back in Mesopotamia. And he's someone who has such fame that uh, when the Moabites realized that conventional weapons are not going to allow them to overthrow the Israelites, they begin to look for a supernatural weapon. Hmm. 
something that they can use to stop what seems to be happening. And so they, they look for this guy. He's famous. And we actually talked a little bit about how there's actual historical evidence uh, of Balaam and of his importance in Moab. Uh, but this is a guy who, you know, you're supposed to think of him as this great wizard, this wonderfully powerful, supernatural free agent. And he's a doofus. He doesn't really know what's going on. He's in over his head. He's unable to truly see what's happening. And uh, he seeks to define right and wrong, good and evil for himself. It gets to the point where he's traveling back to Moab and he's got all of his uh, servants there. He's bringing two servants with him. He's riding a donkey and the angel of the Lord stands against him. And three different scenes, the angel of the Lord stands against him. And at no point does Balaam pick up on the fact that they're in danger. He's supposed to be like the, the watchdog. He's supposed to be the guy who thinks, hey, we're in danger here. There's something moving against us. And he has no concept. He's not able. He's not as powerful as he thinks that he is. But the donkey sees. He's the one who is then, his mouth is opened by the Lord and begins to talk to Balaam. And Balaam has this real awkward conversation with the donkey that pretty much ends in Balaam recognizing, oh, you just saved my life uh, from the angel of the Lord. And the Lord tells Balaam, listen, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you're dead. And so Balaam recognizes, I, I don't think he's a loyal follower of the Lord, that's made pretty clear in the text. He's someone, I think, who is closer to the witch of Endor uh, than he is to mm. Samuel or to Moses. Uh, but uh, the uh, the rabbis, if you read... Uh, so, John, let, oh, let me jump in here real fast. You're, you mentioned at the very beginning, you, you say that Balaam is not a prophet of the Lord. And we, we had an episode just a couple of times back about defining terms and, and making sure we're on the idea. What makes him not a prophet... Of God. Yeah, well, a prophet. So when, this is this is a weird thing for for us today. We we almost exclusively use this word, uh, especially in in church land, uh, to talk about holy men of God who are bringing a message mm -hmm. from the Lord to the earth. Someone who stands as a representative from the divine council to the courts of humankind. Uh, but a prophet, in its loosest sense, is someone who is getting messages from the supernatural world. Okay. It can mean somebody like Samuel. It can also mean somebody like the Witch of Endor, someone who is transposing or bringing uh, messages from either the demonic or the holy. It just depends on which spiritual being they're talking to. And Balaam, living in Mesopotamia and serving the Moabites, uh, and uh, just from his story, you know, at the end of it, he's going up onto other... Uh, high places, sacred sites of the Moabites, we we don't get the idea that this is a man who is like a Melchizedek character, someone mm -hmm. who is loyal to the Lord, uh, but living amongst uh, the pagan peoples. This is someone who God has uh, kind of drafted into his service. This is supposed to be a weapon against him, and the Lord turns him then into someone who blesses rather than curses. And so everything that Balaam is going to seek to do, the Lord is going to undo. And it's a, it's a match of powers. Is, are the, the, is the champion of the host of darkness able to overcome 
the Lord and his will. So is this something that uh, Balaam had specific to him? Like he was kind of chosen to have this ability or, or this prophetic word or whatever you want to say? Yeah, that I don't know. So there are a lot of people who, uh, I mean, it just makes sense to me. Some people are tall and some people are short. Some people are naturally kind and others aren't. It makes sense to me that some people would uh, be better at uh, um, focusing in on supernatural things than other people. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see that as an exclusively supernatural gifting, just mm-hmm. in the sense that people are very different. But he's not, <laughs> he's not coming from the Lord. Right. He's coming from the other side. And on his way to do battle with the Lord, the Lord seems to have stolen him and forced him to, to serve his will instead of the will of the Moabites. Hmm. Very cool. Well, if you doubt me, you can check out you know church history. Uh, Balaam is not exactly somebody that people are very proud of. He never shows up as a positive role model in any of the stories. Uh, if you're going to um, to take a look uh, into what the rabbis had to say about him, there's a, a pretty famous section uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. It's uh, Sanhedrin 105b, and uh, and it talks about Balaam, and it's quoting a verse in Numbers 23 and verse 5. Rose, would you read that? And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. Now the word there for word is is a Hebrew word the bur and and it's it can be translated as word but it can also just mean a, a thing or a matter and one of the rabbis a rabbi named Jonathan interprets this as possibly a a fish hook implying that the Lord reeled him in like a fish forcing his head rather uh, than his words to uh, to bless and and not to curse now do I think God actually put a fish hook in Jonah's mouth. Uh, I don't think Balaam. so. Oh, Balaam's mouth. Who did I say? Jonah. Jonah? Yeah, well, Jonah Fish probably theme. could have. He might yeah. have a few hooks in there. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we see this also with the Apostle Paul, right? The Lord caused scales to, to be on My Paul's thought, eyes. Yeah. And so this is something that the Lord can do. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean just the physical object. He's saying the Lord caused this man to change, that he put something into play that changed the outcome of what would have happened. So the rabbis don't think much of Balaam. Uh, they don't regard him as a true and loyal prophet, but uh, as a snake in the grass, a, a foe, a servant of the darkness. And uh, sometimes the uh, <clears throat> the Talmud uh, carries a lot of stories that are part of Jewish culture and folklore and are talked about that aren't necessarily uh, in the text itself. But in this instance, it gives us a pretty good indication of how we should be thinking about Balaam. So how would um, the rabbis that you're referring to here, what time frame are we talking about for them? Uh, well, the Babylonian Talmud is written over a pretty long period of time. Uh, I'm not entirely sure as to the date of this. It's definitely post-exilic. So during okay. the, the Babylonian exile and afterward, uh, they begin to to compile these kinds of things. Uh, I, I may be way off on my dates there, but I know it's definitely after the exile. Um, but I'll, I'll post that in the Facebook. Do either of you guys know offhand? No? I know what year it is today, and that's pretty that's much about that's it. What yeah. I'm the one that asked the questions. So. Well, I didn't know. Sometimes you ask questions, but you're secretly teeing it up that you, you know. <laughs> the, yeah. big the big reveal is I really don't know. <laughs> So, so Balaam is somehow intermixed with the, the powers of darkness. Yeah, he's an evil man. He's an evil sorcerer is really how I view him. I like how the Bible Project draws him in their numbers. 
uh, breakdown they have him with like a lion's pelt mm-hmm. uh, on his head, and he just looks wicked. And that's what he is. He, you can just imagine a bad guy with a staff. That's that's who he is. He is a priest of the darkness, and uh, he's going there to serve the gods of darkness. That's the, why they've hired him. This is somebody who has the ear of the gods, because the sons of the gods, Sihon and Og, have failed. The Rephaim, the giants that were there, they've been defeated. The Israelites rolled over these guys, and they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have been able to push these men around like they did. So I know that I I probably make way too many Narnia and Lord of the Rings references. No, no, we never have enough. I know, but I'm a straight-up nerd, okay? But I keep thinking of um, Saruman when you're talking about a bad guy with a stick, you know, and a wizard of the darkness and things like that. It feels like that's who he's talking to. It's who it reminds me of. Yeah, it does me too. Somebody who should be good uh, and is instead evil. Uh, I, I think that if, if you had gone to, to Balaam's house, I, I don't think you would have got Saruman vibes. I think you would have got more, I don't know, Wicked Witch of the West kind of a thing going on. So the, the thing that gives me when you say uh, shouldn't be evil but is, would, would Balaam have understood Yahweh? The God of Israel would he have under would he have known that that was he was around and that was an option I guess yeah I think so I, I think especially if he's really talking to these supernatural powers and and just depending on how honest they're being right uh, at the time that Israel has moved up into Moab uh, a good fifty forty plus years have have gone by and the ancient world was pretty good with its communications. Mm the Mesopotamians would have heard all about what was going on in Egypt. And if the gods of Egypt had failed to provide for them and to protect them, yeah, I think Balaam would have known exactly who it is that we're talking about. And so this wouldn't have been a surprise to him, but I think he was surprised that that god bothered to show up and talk to him. I mm-hmm. think that was surprising to him. Because it just seems to me like when you... if I always bring this to a sports analogy, but if you have a team that is undefeated and rolling over everybody... It'd be hard for me to be 100% confident that I'm going to be the one that stands up and defeats him. But it seems like Balaam and every other character that we talk about has some kind of false sense of security. Like, yeah, this guy's really not as big as he thinks he is. Mm. Or Yahweh's not really the God that he says he is and all this, that, and the other. So for some reason, even though they solved the destruction and, and the victories, they still were okay with standing up to him as if he's just another guy in the road. And that's the part that really confuses me with the the Old Testament. People talk all the time about how the Israelites always fell right back into their sin and, and destruction. And it's like, I can understand that because our human nature is to, you know, take the blessings that God gives us and then forget about them tomorrow. Hmm. But with this, like, they're seeing this God, Yahweh, just destroy people and take out people that he shouldn't be able to defeat in places he shouldn't be able to defeat them. That's right. And he still has the confidence to stand up and be like, yeah, I'm going to side with these guys, not him. So what Balaam does is kind of the opposite of that. He, he does do what God requires of him. And then the end of his story, it says, and, and he went home. But he must not have made it very far home or stayed there very long because his, he's going to come back into the story, not as the main character this time, but as kind of a, an evil lurking in the background of the story. And it's a story that happens in, uh, in Moab. The, the god of the Moabites is a god called Chemosh. Uh, and um, many Moabite names include variations of Chemosh uh, in their names. The Israelites were doing this with the, the name El or Yah. 
as in Danielle or Mike L or um, Yonathan. These are names that incorporate the name of the deity. Uh, the Moabites were doing the same thing. Kamu Suilu is Kemosh's god. Another guy is called Kamasusarusur, and that's Kemosh, protect the king. And we find quite a bit about Kemosh actually in the Bible. So take a look at Numbers 21, verse 29. It records uh, an ancient song sung by uh, balladeers. It says, Woe to you, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Kemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his, daughter, his daughters captives to the Amorite king Sihon. So the Moabites aren't friends of Sihon. They, they've been afraid of this guy for quite a while. But they've been defeated by the Israelites. And so the people of Chemosh, the Moabites, are now fearful of the God Yahweh and his people. Uh, Judges 11.24 mentions Chemosh again. Rose, would you pick that up? Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So the argument there is take what your God gives you and we'll take what our God gives us. And so they view then the conquest of the land not as just a battle of armies, but as a battle of deities. Mm -hmm. Is your God capable of keeping us from what is ours. Uh, in 1 Kings 11.33, uh, Kamosh is mentioned again. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Amorites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. So all through the Bible, you're going to find, or at least the Old Testament, Chemosh is this deity that's associated with the people of Moab, with the territory of Moab. But these aren't monotheists. They're not only worshiping one god. They're worshiping the gods of Canaan. Go ahead, Rose. So is that passage that Martin just read in 1 Kings, is that referring to Solomon? Are these some of the gods that would have been brought by his wives to lead him away? Yeah, yeah, absolutely Okay, they it are. says as David, his father, did. So who would he have married who was a Moabite? Oh, Do well, you... Solomon seems to have uh, married everybody. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> you know, there was, uh, he was very interested in forming alliances, and, uh, and so he, he began to honor the gods of those people who were around him. And the Moabites have a, have a long history with Israel going back almost to the beginning. And uh, in um, part of the archaeological record especially, there's something called the Moabite Stone. The Moabite Stone was erected about the 9th century uh, BC by a king called Misha. And he says on the stone, or rather the, they put words in the king's mouth, but this is what the king says. Kamosh said to me, go, take Nebo from Israel. So I went by night, fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, taking it and slaying all 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidservants, for I had devoted them to destruction for the god Ashtar Kemosh. And so viewing these people not as just having a god that they really like, but as saying we are loyal to this supernatural power. And he is an enemy of your God. He's commanded us to go, and so we go. Now, did Kamosh really talk to the king? Uh, yeah, I think so. 
These these aren't imaginary beings. These mm-hmm. are supernatural evil beings who are created by God to serve him but have rebelled against him. And so these rebels, these deities continue through the story and you see them from time to time. And the, he, he, did you notice the end there? It says, I've devoted them to destruction. Harem mm-hmm. uh, is the word that's used of the giant clans in the conquest of Israel. When Joshua comes in, they're supposed to harem uh, the giant clans. They're supposed to to wipe them out. Mm-hmm. And so this being is there. It's opposed to God, opposed to the people of Israel. And Balaam is leaning in this direction, trying to say, okay, God has stopped me. I'm not able to call upon Chemosh. I'm not able to lean on to my Ammonite gods. And so they took him to a place called Peor, Baal of Peor. And we've actually done a whole episode previously on the Baal uh, cycle. Uh, and Baal is, um, is a god who comes from the, uh, the Canaanites, uh, the Phoenicians, and he's the storm god, a god of fertility. But in part of the Baal story, uh, right after he's defeated the enemy, uh, Mot. The, the god of death swallows him up, and he goes to the underworld for a while uh, before he rises again in the springtime uh, to bring about fertility and the rains again. Uh, and so Peor is connected to this underworld aspect of the god Baal. The word Peor actually means uh, a gaping mouth, or it's connected to like the, the jaws of hell. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5 and verse 14, uh, it, it mentions this. Uh, take a look at it. Therefore, Sheol had enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and who exalts in her. It's almost like a Pied Piper moment where he leads the children into the cave and they're never seen it. You didn't know the Pied Piper story? I have heard the Pied Piper story and that was frightening enough without adding like a creepy demonic, you know, aspect to it. Well, I'm just saying that a good fairy tale needs to have its creepy elements to it. Most of them already do. You do not need to add to to it. To add to it. Yeah, well, it says here, the nobility of Jerusalem are dancing their way down the throat of Peor, of this gaping mouth. And so when we were in Caesarea Philippi, we saw something like this, an opening that they believed to the underworld. Uh, And so if you read uh, the Dictionary of Deities and and Demons and you go to the Bale of Peor um, article, it, it says this. It says, the name of Peor in itself already points to a relationship with the cult of the dead, especially when it is observed that it shares this association with other place names in the region east of the Dead Sea. A name Obat, which you'll find in Numbers 21.10 and Numbers 33.43-44, can be translated as spirits of the dead. Another word, Abarim, which is in Numbers 21.11, 27, 12, 33.44-48, Deuteronomy 32, and in Jeremiah 22.20 talks about uh, this place called Abiram, and it means those who have crossed the river of death. It talks about another place called Rafan, which can be related to the Rephaim, 
This is interesting to note because according to Deuteronomy 34.6, Moses is actually buried in this place. And so this whole section of the world is associated with the powers of death. In the folklore of the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Israelites, this is a bad place. Mm. In the north, you find a place like this around Bashan. In the south, you find it here around Beor. So mythological fragments, not belonging to the Baal cycle, but uh, about Baal, have increased our knowledge on, uh, on Baal. And uh, again, the Dictionary of Deities and Demons talks about Baal as being connected up to the Rephaim, that when he was in the underworld, he was the leader of the giants, of the departed souls of the Rephaim. And so all these stories, the, the giants who are ruling Og, all that stuff, it's all connected. These aren't different episodes, you know, disconnected. Mm-hmm. This is all part of one world, and it was intricately woven all together. And they viewed this as a cohesive whole, and so they're worshiping Baal, and they're digging graves and pouring wine or blood down into the graves to feed the God while he's in the underworld. And John, I'm trying to put some stuff together here with the questions I asked earlier and, and now, trying to figure out why Balaam just wouldn't take sides with Yahweh. Again, he, he's seen the destruction, he's seen it, but yet he still tries to lean on the other gods and even tries to figure out a way for himself to take out Israel because he's going to kind of be used for God's glory the other way. And I think I'm figuring it out when I'm reading some of these things uh, when you're talking about uh, up at the beginning, it says slaying all 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidservants, devoted them for destruction for the god Ashar Kamash. And then also when Israel is going to be swallowed up, the multitude is going to go down, her revelers and who exalts in her, into Shoal. I think, and I may be completely off on this, but it sounds to me that these other entities are worth following because they don't have to submit themselves to them. Yeah, I think the defining characteristic that I see in Balaam's story is pride. He is turned, and you get this in his prophecies, I am the man who this, that, and the other thing. I am the one who... He thinks an awful lot of himself. And, but and what he, does, what He's does... not going to admit defeat. He's going to try mm-hmm. to break God's will another way. But what does Yahweh ask of us? What does Jesus ask of us to do, to take up your cross... It daily is yeah. to submit yourself and you know surrender yourself to him and you know Balaam is just one of the many characters that wouldn't turn to Yahweh because I think from what I'm reading and what I'm hearing through our podcast and stuff the other gods didn't want you they want you to do whatever it takes to somebody else to get right. their favor but you don't have to give up you don't have to say you're my master you don't have to do whatever but there is bloodshed there is sacrifices there is everything but not of the self the sacrifices are always of somebody else. So that's so much more intriguing to us. Like, hey, I can just take this person out and then get what I want from this God, or I can go to Yahweh and give up myself yeah. and then try to maybe think, get blessing. I from think that. a good a good rule here for the Two Trees podcast is to go back to the trees. Go back to the Garden of Eden, and what was it that the serpent said to Eve? When you eat from this tree, you will be like gods. Mm-hmm. You'll define right and wrong, good and evil. The Lord is keeping this from you. Join the rebellion against what the Lord is doing. Because remember, these these gods, Kamosh, Ashtaroth, whatever they call themselves, they were once loyal sons of God, but they've rebelled and set themselves up as gods. But just like the gods of Egypt were broken, 
it's, they're going to be broken as well. You know, John, I know we've talked a little bit about this before, and I don't know if we're on the same page with Paradise Lost, but I'm going to go ahead anyway. Oh, okay. I think that this is, I think when I was reading the opening scenes in that book, it really brought home to me that the gods of the Bible were once, like you said, loyal servants of the Most High. And it was a, a complete rebellion. You know, it kind of opens this scene with all of them floundering around like fallen from heaven. That might be where we diverge. That's fine. Okay. But... Kamash is in there. He's one of them. Like they list and yeah. name each of them that are in the Bible in the areas that they rule. And this was written in like 1600s or something like that. Like this isn't new info, but it's relevant now. And it sometimes is new all over again to me. And so that's why I love taking something you've learned, something you've heard. And then when you're reading the Bible, it's like, oh, this is what is going on here. And that's why I think this conversation that we're having right now is so valuable because it takes, like you said, a fluffy story about a donkey that was talking and puts these horrible, you know, rebellious deities or gods where they need to be and puts them back in their place. Yeah, because the temptation for us reading these is just to ignore all the place names. Okay, pure. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what that means or why it matters. I have no background for this. I don't know what emotions I'm supposed to have stored up behind this word because to me it's just words. Mm -hmm. But these places meant things to the ancient people. Setting the story at Peor meant something to the people. Have something, having someone like Balaam come means something to the story. And because we're so far removed from it, there's, there's a danger of just ignoring it altogether, pushing on for the moral of the story and then on to the next thing, mm -hmm. rather than to really savor the text and to ask ourselves, what is it that God has given us here in the Scripture? What is really happening in the story? Because we don't need to know this story. We don't need to know a tremendous amount of the things that are in the Bible, but they're given to us. And because God has given them to us, they're worthy of study and important in their own right. They will help you to develop a relationship with the God who was there, who did these things, mm -hmm. and to recognize his glory. So the challenge that Balaam brings to the table happens at Peor. Balaam cannot curse Israel. No matter what he does, he's unable to. Does that mean Israel is untouchable? He begins to think and he begins to plan. What if I can find a way for Yahweh to curse Israel for me? Mm. That is a bad line of thought. <laughs> Can I manipulate God into doing what I want him to do? But that is how an ancient pagan priest would have thought. That's the entire purpose behind magic and uh, spells and the manipulation of the supernatural world. Don't, don't we think a lot like that today, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's get into this. And before you think I'm making this up and inserting Balaam into places that he shouldn't go... Uh, let's take a look at Numbers 31, uh, verse 16. Behold these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So this is not a war of conventional weapons. Og and Sion, they, they proved that this wouldn't work. The Lord was with Israel and he would break their enemies. So a more magical, a more spiritual weapon is being deployed. And Balaam wants to twist Yahweh to his own will. And so Balaam gives advice 
to the Moabites. He says, listen, I can't say what you want me to say, but if it was me, this is what I would do. Why would he do that if he's a loyal follower of the Lord? He's not. He's not someone interested in serving the Lord. This is someone who is at war with God, and he's serving the enemies of the Lord. So when we read this, we recognize that the whole incident at, Be- at Peor happens because Balaam plans it. It happens on his advice. So let's take a look at what exactly happens. Can we dive a little bit into Oh, the, yeah, go ahead. Why was he unable to curse the Israelites? Well, if you ask Rabbi Jonathan, he would say because the Lord put a fish hook in his mouth, and uh, he wasn't able to, the same way that God caused Paul not to see or the river not to flow uh, when they crossed into the, uh, the, the land of Canaan. God set in motion a plan that would stop him. So when he's trying to curse the Israelites, he's basically trying to cast a spell upon them? Yep. Is what it sounds like? Yep. And so either the spell just won't work? because he doesn't have enough magical power or whatever it is, or he can't say the words properly or yeah, it's something along his, those lines? Yeah, his, uh, his words are turned into blessing. And so there's the whole idea that, first of all, his life is threatened. God makes it abundantly clear to this guy, if you go down there, you're going to say what I tell you to say. Mm-hmm. And then once that episode is done, rather than saying, now I know what the Lord wants me to do, and he's the Lord my God, I'm going to be loyal to him, he then says, yeah, but he didn't tell me I had to listen anymore. Mm. And so immediately he begins pursuing his own way, yeah. defining right and wrong for himself. It's very clever what he comes up with, honestly. It's it's not a smart tactic, but it's a clever way to get it done. So. Only it doesn't get it done. <laughs> well, it, it brings about a, a plague. It brings about um, the death of quite a few people. Uh, and so let's take a look at Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, that makes it sound like a couple Israeli guys were out wandering around, and there was a group of, I don't know, Moabite girls who had just come from their favorite restaurant, and they said, oh, hello there, you know, why don't you come and hang? This is just a, a, a romantic comedy. Uh, that's not at all what this is. These are these are women who have taken a vow here, and it says they they have been sent to lure the Israelites into taking part in the worship of the God of Peor. And so, if weapons can't do it, and spells can't do it, can we do this with lust? Can we weaponize our population? Can we use our 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 women? To, to bring the Israelites and to break the covenant that they have with the Lord. So this is part of that see and take motif. When Eve sees the fruit, she takes it. When, uh, when Lamech sees, he takes. Over and over in the scripture, Achan is a good example of this. He sees and he takes. This is part of that demonic strategy to break fellowship with the Lord. And so these women are sent to serve Baal of Peor. They are a weapon. It's your job to break up their relationship with their God. And they invite them. It it looks like they all went out to eat. You know, it says, uh, 
and the people ate and, and bowed down to their gods, and it just kind of goes on. But really what's happening here is they're taking part in ritual meals for the dead. Mm-hmm. They're engaging in the worship of the God of the dead. Look at Psalm 106, verses 28 through 31. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. So they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. What does it mean to yoke yourself to someone? That was my first question. Yeah, it's that imagery of oxen in the field to plow for the master. They are servants now of Baal, of Peor. And there is going to be a very famous person later on who's going to use this, and his name is Jesus. And he's going to say, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is, is light. Uh, this imagery is, is all through the Bible, this idea of mankind and who do we serve, who is our master. And so they ate the sacrifices offered to the dead. They're participating in the worship of Baal, and they have no idea that this whole Balaam scene happened. The Lord protected them, and they didn't realize it. He was faithful, and they are faithless. And then you meet this guy, Finhas. He stands up, and he intervenes, and he breaks the, the plague that's coming. And I really like the story of Finhas. Uh, it's not a very long one. He doesn't get the multiple chapters like uh, Balaam did. Uh, but it's a very important section of Scripture for understanding uh, even into the, the New Testament, the Pharisee system. So let's take a look at Numbers 25, 6 through 9. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, Saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So the enemy is at the gate of the tabernacle. This is something that has swept through the camp. The Israelites are abandoning the Lord. And they are following Baal of Peor. This is pretty much the end of themselves as a people. This is the end of the conquest. This is it. They've got there, and now they are defecting in droves to Baal of Peor. And it says that uh, Moses and the priests uh, are, are gathered at the very doors of the tabernacle. And, and there's a man there who brings his... Uh, his new girlfriend home and says, and it's at the very gates of the tabernacle. And, and this isn't a word that, that just, this isn't like a young man necessarily who's, you know, he's fallen in love. This is his first loved one. This, this may be a, a man bringing home his new wife and saying to his old wife, hey, I've upgraded uh, children. This is your new mother. Uh, and, and it's not as though they're having, you know, just this, this really uh, loving uh, conversation. It says that he went after the man into the chamber. They seem to be coupling together. 
this this isn't he he brought home his his new girlfriend to meet the parents this this is an abomination and it's taking place at the very gates of the tabernacle and so what happens is finhas doesn't know what to do he he doesn't have a spell he can cast he's not a magician he doesn't have anything that he can do and so he grabs a, a tree he grabs a spear and he attacks the enemy. This woman is not an innocent bystander. She is a servant of Baal of Peor. She's come to destroy his people, and he pierces them through their bellies. It's interesting because that's what, what have they been doing? They've been eating. They've been into these uh, sacrifices for the dead, uh, this sacrifice uh, meal that's there, and the this this family is going or seems to be about to come about. There's real Nephilim maybe connections to this story. Is this a possessed person? What what exactly is going on? But what we recognize is that Finhas says, if all I can do is attack, then that's what I'll do. Hmm. And he does what he can to stop the flow of Baal into the camp. Does this make sense to you at all? It's wildly inappropriate for today. I mean, I am. I bring it up again. This reminds me so much of ransom, ransom punching Weston in the face to get rid of the demon. You know, I know another Lewis reference, but it really reminds me of the same thing. When that's all you can do, that's what you do, and yeah. that's what this guy does. He takes up a spear and he stops the evil that's came into the camp. It's a spiritual evil, and he stops it in a physical way. Yeah, that's that's what you're looking at here. And it says that uh, he does this out of zeal, loyalty to the Lord. And the Lord recognizes this and more or less forgives Israel because of the act of Finhas. Now, Finhas is uh, he's, he's a relative of Moses. Um, this is the Eliezer's son, so this is Aaron's grandson uh, is, is who this guy is. Uh, but he's he's done what he can. He took a spear and, and he attacks the enemy. And suddenly Israel is not destroyed. The plague doesn't eat them up. There is still a loyal remnant of Israel. And so what happens is Balaam's plan unravels. Israel isn't broken. Their relationship with God is still intact. And it's going to bring about Balaam's death. So John, when I when I see this, when I read this, if this were to ever happen today, somebody were to come into our church and I were to grab a spear and just impale them, I'm looking at life in prison, not like a chapter in the Bible where I'm, you know, the the hero of the story. So I just, I just trying to figure out what does this mean to us today? Well, the first thing you should do is to look at this and to say, this is not normal life. This is a spiritual weapon being deployed, that this is a demonic person who is trying, and you're literally seeing the plague sweep across the country. Jesus has made it very clear what his followers are to do. If in the past it wasn't clear or there were times where violence was permissible, Jesus makes it very clear, now we're to love our enemy, we're to turn the other cheek. The moment that Christianity becomes violent, it ceases to be the message of Christ. We are not to be a violent people. We are not to impose our will on others. The church is not a replacement for Israel, that these are separate things. And so if you're trying to use this to justify violence against people that you don't like or ideas that you don't 
promote, you, you have to ignore Jesus. And that's a really dangerous thing to do. As a matter of fact, it's the same thing that Balaam is doing. He's trying to manipulate this so that it does what I want it to do, rather than to allow God to speak for himself. And Balaam's going to reap what he sowed. Remember, he's from Mesopotamia. He's from way up north, and he seems to have gone home and come back. And listen to what happens to him in the book of Joshua, chapter 13, verses 21 through 22. All the cities of the Tableland and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. You notice it doesn't call him a prophet here. Mm. It says who practiced divination. That's to speak with the dead. Balaam dies. He's cut down in the conquest because he stands with the Rephaim. He stands with Molech and Baal against the Lord. His plan is destroyed. There's a really great book of the Bible that gives us wise sayings. And it's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verses 11 through 12. And I'd like you to read it with Phinehas and Balaam in mind. Because the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. We don't define good and evil. We don't get to look to what God has said and say, yes, but you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. We're to obey. We're to love. We're to turn the other cheek. We're to carry our cross. We're to forgive. We're to serve the Lord, not the other way around. There is a way that seems right to us, but we're stupid. We, we don't follow the wisdom very well. Balaam thought this was a really good idea. And on paper, it was a really good, or papyrus, I don't know, whatever he was writing it down. This is a good plan, except it leads to his death and the breaking of the princes of Moab. So this idea of zeal being what God was after, this rejection of the, the pagan gods became very popular after uh, the Babylonian exile. The Jews came back and they were like, you know, we never want to go into exile again. We need to make sure that we are loyal to the Lord. And there's a really great book written by um, by uh, Dr. Dang it, <laughs> I forgot his name, uh, Tom Wright. Uh, and in it, he's, he's talking about uh, the Apostle Paul. I think the name of the book is just Paul. But he talks about in this book how before 70 AD, the Pharisees placed a tremendous value on purity. Not purity as in a purity ring, don't sleep around, but purity as in remaining aloof from the Gentiles. And they rejected the worldly ways of the Gentiles. Don't, this became almost the central part of what they were doing as a people. And the Apostle Paul describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he has a very Balaam-like experience. And he notedly makes use of the zeal motif. Saul thought that by killing the Christians, by hunting Stephen, that he was pleasing the God of his fathers. And when Jesus meets him on the road, he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He had misunderstood 
everything. And so this idea of zeal is connected to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Take a look at the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If I had to answer your question earlier about Finhas and zeal, I would point you here. Mm-hmm. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is what Christ has asked us to do. He is the end of the law. Righteousness to everyone who believes. Our zeal doesn't make us righteous. But I think to me in verse 3, it really points to why someone would go to the other gods. For they, uh, the righteousness of God in seeking to establish their own, they did not want to submit to God's righteousness. I feel like all these other guys are granting the power, the authority, whatever you want to say to these people, and they're not having to submit fully to them. They yeah. get to have a say in the matter. They get to have the power that they desire, and God isn't wanting to share it in that capacity as far as, like, you have the power to then be destructive on whatever you feel is right and wrong. Mm. You now have the power of me, which is the fruits of the Spirit. And I, I think that's something that we can't comprehend because the only way we equate power is being able to do what I want to do and not having any care how it affects others. And God is, and Jesus especially is flipping that on its head and saying, you have power because you can affect these other people positively. And that brings so much more fulfillment to your life than, than having the power and authority ever could. Yeah, it has to do with serving the Lord. What is it that God is trying to do? And then joining in with that. It's not about trying to make God do things your way or trying to manipulate God or his people into acquiring power or wealth. I mean, the world is filled with people who've done this. I mean, it's, it's almost uh, an embarrassing trope that, you know, a, a television pastor is after your money. Just the mere fact that he's on TV is enough for most people to say, hey, this is, this is, this, these people don't have a great track record. This is someone asking for money, probably shouldn't send him any. This idea of using the church to accumulate power. If you want to read more about this, you can read Third John. He talks about this. You can read the book of Jude. He talks about this. But Balaam keeps coming back into the story. Whenever we encounter someone trying to do things for money, for pride, to, to accumulate power, he's woven back in multiple times into the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I think probably my favorite part of the New Testament that weaves Balaam back into the story is in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You notice it didn't say anything about his blessing the people? It connects him to the incident at Baal of Peor. 
these men and women are living in a city called Pergamum. This is a, an ancient city in Turkey. And he says, listen, you, you're holding fast to my name. Antipas has even died there uh, to, for my name. But in your city, in your church, there are, there are people who are teaching the way of Balaam. This strategy is at work in your church. Now, is this Balaam's spirit? No. Is this some sort of uh, uh, a plan that Satan has concocted? Well, sort of. It's the same one he used then, and it's a real effective one. There's no need to reinvent the wheel here. It worked then, it works now, and it worked in Pergamum. And so you're saying that the strategies of Balaam are to bring evil into the people of God? To use God for personal advancement. Can I manipulate this to get power and to lift up my name at the expense of what God's plan is and what God is doing? Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. I just, I'm, I'm just a tiny bit stuck on when he actually caused them to come into sin and to bring sin into the camp, like we were talking about a little bit ago, and Martin said, well, you just can't take care of that like that way now. And you said, well, the difference is Jesus. You know, we live after Jesus came and sacrificed himself. So now when, when we see sin or we see any kind of like evil or divination or, or whatever, we, we turn to Jesus because that's, that's, that is, yes. Then that is the difference, Old Testament, New Testament. And since this verse is in the New Testament, I'm just wondering where's in the in the passage in revelation where do we see jesus like what yeah well go back to the very beginning it says this okay. these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword this is jesus and he's speaking he says i know that you are dwelling where satan's throne is this is a place where the enemy has power this is a place where the beings are enthroned and then he says this he says yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. This is the heart of this text. All right. If you want to attack Balaam, you don't do it with a spear. You hold fast to the name of Jesus. You don't go into Baal of Peor and eat with him. You don't fall into the sexual immorality. You hold the name of Jesus fast and be loyal. That's what this is about. Are you on the Lord's side or are you secretly on your own side? And if Satan helps you, that's okay. And if God helps you, that's okay. Because ultimately you're in this for yourself. To push back against this is not done through violence. It's done through faithfulness. Our foes are not gone. They change masks and names but our enemy has not laid down their arms. Their power is broken. Christ is king, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, mighty and awesome.
Well, guys, thank you for listening to our episode. We don't normally do this, but we've been sitting around the table talking about our episode here, kind of critiquing. And uh, Martin got tired of us, and he went home because he's got a big day today. But uh, we just wanted to make sure that we came across and got certain things uh, clearly stated. You know, Rose, why don't you walk them through your question there, your thoughts? Well, I also want to clarify that he needs to clarify because I sat down and said, now what about this, this, and this? And he said, sounds confusing. Maybe we should clarify that. So what I did was walk from the beginning with Balaam from the very beginning where Og and Sion were, um, they were defeated by the Israelites. And so then Balak gets kind of freaked out, calls in Balaam to curse them. So he comes along and um, talks to the Lord, is basically told that you can't say anything that I don't allow you to say. And he's like, sounds like a plan. Let's go curse him. And so him and he keeps trying to only can bless. And then he keeps going to these different high places with Balak, trying to curse the Israelites at some point in there. There's a donkey that speaks to him. There's an angel of the Lord standing in his way. This just job just isn't getting done. And so end of story. That was our first episode. Balak goes home. Uh, sorry, Balaam goes home. Man, these names are really close, aren't they? You're doing awesome. Thank you. I, I, I'm really, I really appreciate that. Um, so then it's like he goes home and it's like, you know what? On second thought, I'm going to go back and do this job right. This, this is how I, this is where the breakdown came for me. And I, I said, why does he come back? Like, does he come back because he's, he's angry at the Lord because he wants to curse these Israelites and he's not allowed to, like his job is just not working. Or is he annoyed at the Israelites because they need cursed and he can't do the job. Like either way, this is going to happen. So he comes back and he leads them. And this is according to something in the New Testament. I don't have my outline or my Bible open. It's in Revelation where it says they walked in the way of Balaam. And mm-hmm. okay, so he comes and causes the Moabites to tempt the Israelites into sin. And the Israelites fall for it, take the Moabite women into the camp to commit fornication with them. And then they are, um, Phinehas picks up his spear and takes care of that. And there's, and it stops the plague that started because of their sin. So I think that my breakdown question came was, did Balaam accomplish what he set out to do? Did he actually get the Lord to curse the Israelites? And we've all agreed that the Lord cannot be manipulated. This is not, this is not the issue on the table. Is it that, and this is what my, this was my question, John, and it took me a minute, but I'm here. Does, does Balaam get what air quotes he wants by having the Israelites sin or does he, um, is this not the result that he wanted in the end? Where's Balaam's yeah, ending in th- the story? I think in the end, it is not what Balaam wanted. Balaam has prided himself in being uh, the guy, that he is a winner. He is the man who gets jobs done. And in this instance, he's, he's outfoxed. He's outmaneuvered by the Lord. And we don't know exactly what happens next, whether a lot more money exchanged hands or if this is simply a pride thing, the way the New Testament uses the phrase of Balaam is that it's in pursuit of money. It's in pursuit of power. It's in pursuit of self. And so either of those would be, uh, would be valid um, hypotheses. 
The, the answer is we don't know because Balaam's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Israel is unfaithful and God is faithful. I think that those are my, that does help with two of my main points was why did Balaam come back? The first time he was offered money on the table to come. The second time, it's like he had no skin in the game. You know, I mean, maybe there's something that we don't know. Maybe it's not written down, but he's just like he comes back and wants to cause Israel to be cursed. And, um, and so that, that kind of does help that first part. It was just a little unclear to me why yeah, he was I, even I back in the first place. Balaam's goal is to stop Israel. And he mm-hmm. fails. He fails. The Lord overpowers Balaam. So it would be a pride thing in I a think way. So, it's, yeah. a, it's a job not well done. And so he tries to manipulate the Lord. You, you can't manipulate the Lord. The Lord has given them the law. He's given them a relationship with him. And he said, you know, if you do this, then these things will happen. If you don't, then you're, you're going to reap what you sow. And so Israel chooses what to do. Israel is in the position where they are supposed to collectively image God and to say, we are loyal followers of the Lord. We are not going to be serving these other gods. And they don't do it. They don't image the Lord well. They, they fail. It's not that the Lord fails. The Lord redeems this. He brings victory into the situation. But Israel is supposed to champion the Lord here, and they fail to do it. Instead, it's down to Phinehas, and he jumps up and does something, and it says the Lord accounts it as righteousness for the whole congregation that's there. So the whole congregation didn't fall into sin. It was a portion. And 24,000, right. I think it said, were killed by the plague. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive uh, battle, a supernatural battle that takes place here. But did Balaam win? No. He, his corpse is left with all the other Midianites, Moabites, Amorites that are out there. He's swallowed up. And I think it goes back to that verse we read earlier. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. The Lord is not beaten by Balaam. And so if your mind is leaning in that direction, I just wanted to get back on here and tell you that's absolutely not what I was saying. I'm saying that the Lord is the winner, that Balaam is defeated, and that... um, Israel made a bad choice. They yeah, they did. They made a choice to do what they saw as right. They were dwelling in a garden. You know, they're, they're being given everything that they need. They're being given water. They're being given manna. They're being provided for. The Lord is with them. And they choose to worship the dead. This is a really bad decision. And I think it's supposed to be overlaid with that garden imagery again, going all the way back to the trees of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Well, I feel like this actually did help. I just kept landing on that. Why did he come back? And was he really manipulating the Lord? And did the presence of the plague in the camp indicate that that actually took place? And I was just like, that just can't be. And John's yeah. like, no, that's not right. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I want to make sure that, the Lord. yeah, sometimes I don't get out of my mouth what I think in my head. You know, the staff of Balaam and then the spear of Finhas. These are images that they lead us back to this two trees analogy that the Lord is going to bring about redemption. He's going to bring us into the promised land and that nothing that man can do can stop him. So I hope 